That is a great message, especially right before the sermon. Come awake, come awake. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we can all uh, do that. Hey, kids, ages uh, three through uh, first grade, uh, now's your time. If uh, your parents are okay with it, you can head back to our children's worship. Uh, it's a great time in which uh, there's a worship service already planned, specifically uh, at your age group is where it is aimed. So you can head back. Uh, for those of us who are staying in here, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll pick up our, our study through this book in verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to you, our God and our King, in need of your grace. We thank you for the privilege we've had of worshiping you so far today in so many ways, and we look forward now for the opportunity to hear from your word, and we pray that you will grant to me the words that I might speak, and that you, O Spirit of God, would give those words power, and that you would bring them to each of our hearts. We pray, our God, that as we look to your word, that you would change us, each and every one. We pray for our kids and children's worship, Lord. Grant that they may know you and that they may abandon themselves to you. We look to you and we ask for these blessings in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Um, it's probably become evident in the last 10 years that I've been preaching here that I like words. Um, I love definitions. Uh, it just helps so much to have a, a, a good meaning of a word. And, and there are some words that are, that are kind of fuzzy. Someone said one time, how do you define vanilla, right? I don't know. That, that's, that's a difficult one. And there are other words like hope. And think of the different ways that we use the word hope. Sometimes hope is a plan, right? We're just thinking of it as a, as a plan, like I hope to finish Hebrews this year. Okay, 
It's a plan, and I have a plan, and you can, I can email you a copy. It's all written out. Here's when I intend to preach each of the passages. So sometimes it's, it's a hope is just a plan. Sometimes hope is just wishful thinking, like I hope to finish writing uh, toward Christian maturity this year. I'm pretty sure that's just wishful thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain that I, I, I might not be able to accomplish that, but I hope to, right? And, and sometimes we, we use it in that way, and at other times it's just a nice thought. Like, I hope you have a better 2023 than 2022, right? And that's just a nice thought. It isn't necessarily conveying anything about the word hope. It's just, just a word that, that, that says, this is what I would like to happen in your life. But the reality is, everyone is looking for hope. Everyone is trying to find hope in some way. I remember in, uh, when we were in Malawi, we saw all these ministries and it, it seemed like uh, almost all of them had the word hope in their ministry name somewhere. So I did a quick search of a list of all the NGOs and non-government organizations in Malawi. And uh, there were 36 different organizations working there with hope in their name somewhere. Uh, Malawi being, I think, uh, the most recent rating as the 11th poorest country in the world. Uh, and so you've got this, this great poverty and you've got the, the difficulties that they face and so people go in to help in Malawi and they recognize what are people looking for? They're looking for hope. They want hope somehow. Let's, let's bring them some level of hope and so the, the organization puts hope in its name. Most of the time when it's being used, it's, it's really the, the hope that most folks are, 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 are looking for and what they settle for is actually just, just wishful thinking. They just, just hope this will happen. They hope it'll be better. And, and, and that's just, they have no reason to believe that it will, but they're hoping that it will. But for us, who believe in Jesus Christ, hope is an entirely different thing. The hope that we have in Jesus is real. And we simply try to align ourselves with the reality of that hope that we have in Jesus. As Paul was, or not Paul, as the author of Hebrews was writing this book, boy, talk about habit. Um, I actually don't believe Paul wrote this book, but anyway, as the, as the author was, was, was writing this book, he knew that the Jewish believers at that time were also wanting hope, and they'd spent their whole life wanting hope, but... He wanted them to understand that in the coming of Christ, something new has come. That hope is more real than it has ever been before. He's writing to Jewish Christians uh, in, in the first century, and, and they grew up uh, in the Jewish system, in the Old Testament, with, with uh, <clears throat> a shadowy message. The message was there, but, it, but it wasn't, it's not always super clear. For instance, they had sacrifices. They had to sacrifice bulls and goats and, <coughs> and those types of things. And yet even the individuals, even as they would offer the sacrifice, they'd be aware that this animal can't actually take away my sin. And they would know that this is insufficient, but they knew they had to do it. And so there's a, a shadow that was, was cast over what they were seeking to accomplish in their worship. They knew that the Messiah was coming but they didn't know when or where or how. They looked for the kingdom of God, and yet they lived under the rule of Rome. It was all this fuzzy. And the author of Hebrew wants to tell these believers that Jesus 
brings a real hope and that we have this real hope. Let's look at it, and he shows us this in two different ways that we can find this, this real hope. And the first is we can find this hope as, as we use God's guarantees. As we use God's guarantees. I think of that there are several bases for hope that we have that are, are false bases for hope. One of them is sometimes we put hope in unreliable people. And by unreliable people, I mean everyone, right? Because all of us fail at one way or another, right? Um, and sometimes we put our, our hope in people who will not be able to succeed. Sometimes we put our hope in, in uncertain events, Right? Like a Denver Bronco fan putting their hope and the Broncos actually making it to the playoffs sometime. You know, it's a very uncertain kind of thing, and, and so it's a shaky hope that's, that's there. Sometimes we put our hope in statistics. I think about this every time I hear someone state that statistically, uh, flying is the safest way to travel. Uh, unless it's not, uh, is, is always the way that I go. So, so my whole hope then is on statistics. That's what, and so as I get in the plane and I pray, um, I'm praying not for statistics to keep me safe, but for the Lord Jesus Christ to keep that plane flying uh, and for him to, to hold it. And so we begin to put our, our hope maybe in a, in a different place than in statistics. But you see, God gives us certain guarantees of our hope. Now think of that. God guaranteeing something. And two of them are mentioned in this passage. And the first one is, there's a guarantee in the fact that he gave us a new law. He gave us a new law. Um, the, the old law, I just want to think about this for a moment, that, that the, the Jews that he's writing to, they grew up under this old law. And just think about some of what that old law was as we look at verse 11. He says, now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, from the basis of it, people received the law. And so he puts this connection between the Levitical priesthood and the law, and he sees them there. And what he's pointing out is that that, that, that old law wasn't able to perfect us. It isn't able to actually bring us to completion. We're going to look at the word perfection multiple times today, and we're going to look at a, a definition of it here in just a little bit. But just kind of keeping that idea that um, the Levitical priesthood didn't accomplish perfection, and, and they would be able to see that. They also knew that the, the Old Testament law, they would recognize was an external law, right? Where were the Ten Commandments written? On stone tablets, and they were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, right? So, so these stone tablets outside of man, this law was there, and it always stood outside of man, and it stood there, and we recognize that one of the ways that it stood, particularly in the Old Testament, it stood and it condemned those who would look upon it. We read that in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, as now Paul says, because the, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The idea is that we had the law and it's sitting out there and we look at the law and we see the law and what it reveals to us isn't the great hope that we have in Jesus, no, but it reveals to us the great need that we have in our hearts, that we have failed, that it stands there as a condemnation of who we are. And the law left alone isn't able to give us hope in the old law. 
And so we need the new law. And what the new law brings, we see in, in verse 12, he says, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a place a change of law also. So with the change of the priesthood from the Levitical order to the order of Melchizedek, you see this change in the law. And the scripture has told us about this change and just how significant it is. Remember that we looked at... Uh, the, the old covenant, the old law, was outside. But in the new covenant, we see something else. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, we read, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. That is not the passage I wanted to look at. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's saying that there's going to be this shift. Instead of the law being outside, just something that i got to kind of find and, and look at, all of a sudden now I see it's inside. All of a sudden I know the law. I know what, is, what, he, what he's calling me to do. Not as something that stands out as something to condemn me, but something that is inside that is empowering me and directing me and guiding me. This change is taking place with the new law that God has given to us. And this new law that is inside us functions as, as a guarantee that we have hope because God has taken the law from outside and has put it in. And that tells me that he's working. He's doing something inside me. Not only is it internal, whereas it had been out external, it is also powerful. Think about the power of the law as it's described to us in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 and 27. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, another word for law, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see what's going to happen in the new law, the new law is not only inside, but it's inside with power. That it actually transforms our life, it actually works inside us, not just as a, as a message to condemn us, but now, now it is powerfully moving and it's saying, and I'm going to empower you and enable you that you may walk after the law of God. So the law becomes something that's, that's internal and it becomes something that, 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 that uh, is, is powerful. Romans 8 talks about that as well as uh, Paul is even talking about this change. He says, he starts out with verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirements of the law excuse me, might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Doesn't that give you great hope? The law isn't just out there as this thing that just condemns me, but it's something that's inside, and it's something that works powerfully inside me, and it's changing my life, and it's changing my, my attitude and my desires, and the entire direction of my life is turned toward I want to walk after God. And that new law, that new law is summarized by Jesus in John chapter 13 and verse 34. Where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's a powerful law. It's a law that calls on us to love. We don't necessarily have all of the... And if you think about in the, in the Old Covenant, you had the three elements of the law. You had the moral law, which is found in the Ten Commandments. You had the civil law, which are those laws that had to deal with the, the civil government of, of Israel. And you had the ceremonial law, which is all the different washings and, and, and sacrifices that you had to do. And can you imagine growing up with that? And you've got a, a good night... What do I have to do? How many laws do I have to keep? And I've got all these laws that I've got. And in the new, Jesus has said, what's the, what's the law? Love. Let's just, let's just rest there. Love one another. Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. That's the new law that we have. And that's a good law, isn't it? Now, there's no question that, you know, if, if I'm supposed to uh, keep my uh, oxen that is known to gore people uh, separated so that it's not goring people, that's kind of a loving thing to do to my neighbor, right? And that's, that's a good thing. But I can even do that without even caring much about my neighbor, right? I can do that just out of fear that I don't want to face the consequences. But the call of the new covenant is to love my neighbor so much that, of course, I'm going to keep my oxen or my dog that tends to bite or away from them because I care for them and to be able to, to find that in my life. Now, I just want to work this out. And I want you to see how this works as, 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 a, as a guarantee that he gave us a new law. You know God's law, right? Now, if you don't, it means you weren't paying attention. It's to love, okay? So now we got that. So we, we've got that. We know God's love. This is what I'm called on to do. And you try to follow God's law, Right? You know it, and you try to follow it by loving people. And when you do, it's at that point that you can see that this is a guarantee of the hope that we have. Because why would I do that? Except that the Spirit of God is in me, and there is a hope. The first guarantee is that he gave us a new law. The second is that Jesus is our priest forever. Jesus is our priest forever. Look at verse 15 and 16. And this is clear still. If another, priest arise, uh, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of indestructible life. It was in verse 15, verse 15 and 16. First of all, he says, not on the basis of these physical requirements. That's to say, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a, a priest because of his genealogy. It wasn't because of his parentage that allowed Jesus to become the high priest, but it was his indestructible life that allowed him to be the um, priest forever. His indestructible life. Literally, the, the, the word is a life that is unloosed. That is to say, it was impossible, if you will, for Jesus to be loosened from life or life to be loosed from him. That there was that constant connection between Jesus and life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not just Jesus has the life, but He is the life itself. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and quick spoiler alert, you know, uh, there's, there's a point where, where the, the lion is a, uh, dies and resurrects. 
right? Aslan comes back to life. And the basis in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was, well, there's a, there's a higher law at place, right? There was a law that, the, that an innocent person could take the place of a guilty person and that the witch would be able to kill that, uh, that person who takes the place, and they did that. But the witch didn't know the higher law, which was if someone did that, that they would come back to life, right? And so it's easy for us to think that that's some sort of uh, an, an allegory of, of Christianity. It's not an allegory at all. It doesn't relate to Christianity at all in one sense. There was no greater law that if Jesus just gave up his life for others, he'd have to come to life. No. Why did he come to life? Because he was life itself. He couldn't remain dead because he was life. Life cannot be conquered by death. He has an indestructible life. Not just an indestructible living as Jesus, but his life, life itself inside him, was indestructible, and that's how he became a priest forever. And not only that, but he also was our priest forever because God swore an oath. It says in verse 17, For it is attested of him you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is simply quoting from Psalm 110, in which we read, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we have two guarantees, and so we need to use those guarantees. We need to, we need to recognize that we have a new law, and we live in accordance with that law. We need to recognize that Jesus is our priest. We need to continually go to him. And this becomes our guarantee. And this is how we, we find that real hope. And the second way is that we need to look to the substance of our hope. Look to the substance of our hope. I want to read for a moment from uh, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And in this, um, Frankl is, is talking about uh, speaking to... Um, the, the people in the, in the camp, and particularly in the, the hut where he lived, and he was giving them a message to give them hope for what they were facing when he was in the, in the midst of, I think he was in Auschwitz, is where he was uh, imprisoned during the Nazi uh, takeover. And this is what Frankel had to say. Frankel, who was a Jew, he says, Then I spoke about the future. I said that to the impartial the future must seem hopeless. I agreed that each of us could guess for himself how small were his chances of survival. I told him that although there was still no typhus epidemic in the camp, I estimated my own chances at about 1 in 20. But I also told him that in spite of this, I had no intention of losing hope and giving up. For no man knew what the future would bring, much less the next hour. Even if we could not expect any sensational military events in the next few days, who knew better than we, with our experience of camps, how great chances sometimes opened up quite suddenly, at least for the individual? For instance, one might be attached unexpectedly to a special group with exceptionally good working conditions, for this was the kind of thing which constituted the luck of the prisoner. 
And he tells this story, and he, he talks about how he received hope and how the people that he's speaking to received such hope. As, as he said, think of the hope that we can have just on the fact that we don't know the future and we might get lucky. That was the full extent and the sum of substance of the hope that he was offering to these prisoners was we might get lucky. And it worked. But how much more for you and I that we have a better hope? Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. A better hope. Now, um, for the women who are going to the women's study, uh, they're going through the book of Hebrews, and the title of the book is Better. And it's based on this word that's used repeatedly in the book of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, the same word is used three different times in uh, this chapter. Um, and it's talking about a better hope. A better hope. And it's interesting, the root of this word and what that root is and what it means. Let me just uh, read to you from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. This word, denoting the presence of strength, means A, natural strength, B, the power that one has or with which one is invested, C, control, and D, supremacy, superiority, victory. It has all of those connotations in it. But you notice at the heart of it, central to the meaning of this word, is strength. Because things which are imaginary have no strength, right? A hope that is just based on the fact that I, I hope things will be better, a hope that is based on maybe we'll get lucky, has no strength in it, right? Because it's all imaginary. But our hope is a better hope. Our hope has a natural power in it, a strength that is central to what it is. It is a better hope. It is a real hope. Our hope is that we will be perfected. Verse 11 Show and verse 19 both talk about the fact that the, the old covenant wasn't able to perfect us. It said the old priesthood cannot perfect us. The implication is, but Jesus can. He can perfect us. Now we're going to talk about what perfect means, right? Uh, what, is, what does perfect mean? All of us would say, well, we're never going to be perfect, right? Well, I'm not sure the, the scripture would say that, but I think it also means something different than we do uh, with perfect, when we try to grasp the meaning of this word. There are a couple different places I want to look at. The first is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And in Philippians 1, 6, we read these words as Paul is, is talking about the Philippian believers. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect it, and that is to say, he will bring it to its end. The word Perfect, the, the Greek word is telos. Telos, which is the, the, the end, which is the goal, which is the conclusion, which is, 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 is the, the finishing of something. As a matter of fact, it's the word that Jesus uses, uses it in the perfect tense when he's on the cross. And he says, it is finished. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. 
You see, what he's saying is, it's completed. It's perfect. This was the goal. We've accomplished it. And God has such a goal in your life. And you will be perfected. Jesus, first off, perfects us by his life. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 14, we read, uh, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's a lot of words to say Jesus died for our sins, right? But that's what it's saying, and it's describing exactly what that means. That Jesus has taken away all of those sins which would hold us as guilty and would condemn us. And Jesus took every one of those upon himself on the cross, and he bore that completely for us so that we are perfected because our sin has been taken away. But our sin being taken away still leaves us naked with nothing to commend us to God. We stand before God without the righteousness that is necessary to enter into His presence. Remember, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter into heaven. And there we are. Our sin has been taken away, and yet we lack righteousness, which is why we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that what Jesus did is he not only took our sin, but he gives to us his righteousness, if you will, as spotless clothing that completely covers us and commends us to the Father. Not based on the works that we have done, but based upon the works that he has done. And this is perfection. Can you imagine a righteousness greater than the righteousness of Jesus? Remember a a preacher one time, I was at General Assembly and we were in a General Assembly's at a tall building. So we're on an elevator for a long time. And this brother told me of a sermon he had recently preached to his church, in which he asked the church, and he says, how many of you think that you're more righteous than, and he threw out some person who is a notorious sinner, and everybody raised their hand. How many of you think that you are more righteous than, and, and he throws out someone who's uh, you know, a, a little bit better. How many of you think you're as righteous as me? And he said, most of them sat down. You know, and, 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 and he felt good about that. How many of you think you're as righteous as Billy Graham? And it's like three people remain standing. And he says, how many believe you're as righteous as Jesus? And no one was standing. And then he says, y'all should stand up. Because the reality is every one of you, because of his work, is as righteous as Jesus Christ. It was a long elevator ride, but well worth it. What a great message. What a great reminder. We will be perfected. Not that we always get it all right, but that Jesus did. He's gotten it right for us, and he's taken our sins upon himself. Forgive me, I have to ask, do you believe that? I mean, really, really, that this is true for you. You believe that Jesus has died for your sins. And I'm speaking not just to the tall people here, but kids, every one of you, I want to ask that same question. Do you believe? And I invite you, believe today. Put your trust in Jesus. 
He will perfect you. And you know what else is true? The substance of our hope. We're going to be perfected, which means Jesus perfects us by his life, but it also means that you will glorify God. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to... There we go. We got about 30%. That's pretty good for a Presbyterian church. I, I, you know, I, it'd be great if we could get about 80, but we'll, we'll go with 30. Chief end of man is... To, plus, it's written up there, right? Anyway. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I thank God for John Piper, who reminds us that it's all the same thing, but, but the focal point when we think about John Piper all the time is, is enjoying God, and that's a good thing, but let's not forget that you do glorify God. That's your chief end, is to glorify God. A part of that is, is, is enjoying Him, but it's to glorify God. That is what you were made to do. And in Jesus, you do. Our hope is, that we do glorify God. The second substance of hope is that God is near. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We had... uh, Heavy thoughts today. It is a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I think it's maybe the first time in 10 years that we've actually celebrated on the right day. We, we, as, as a congregation, we get caught up with so many other things, but we, we got it on the day, and I believe that this is the, I think Russ mentioned the 50th anniversary of, of Roe versus Wade. We, we continue to battle for the life of the unborn, and, and uh, that's that's. That's what we need to do. And, and we think about that, and it's heavy, right? It's heavy. The, the recognition of other ways in which people um, devalue human life, it's heavy, it's heartbreaking. When I awoke this morning and I saw uh, the news of the shooting in California, and my heart just sank as, as I realized, here we are again, and, and just the sadness of... Of in America, we, we're not valuing human life. We value our life and the life of our friends, but not, not human life in general. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's heavy. And it's really easy to begin to think about what are the problems that are there. And, and as we think about what are the problems of this world, I think we can get distracted. The problems of our world are not political. That's not the problems in our world. The problem is not uh, that uh, Republicans or Democrats are in power. That's not the problem in this world. That's just not. Poverty is not the problem in this world. As a matter of fact, not even sin or death are the problems in this world. So often we focus in these areas, and it's good to fight against, uh, to fight within the political arena. It's good to fight against poverty. It's good to fight against sin and, and against death. I, 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 I'm not saying that. But what is the source of the political divisions that we have in our, in our world? What is the source of poverty. What is the source of sin and death? It's that man is alienated from his creator. I'm sorry. Man is alienated from the creator. That's the problem in this world. It's the alienation. We're made in God's image and yet we're alienated from him. This is the problem that we face. This is the problem that needs to be solved. This is the problem that Jesus solved. Notice the issue is that we're separate from God. And what does he say is the better hope? 
that God is near. The better hope is that God is near. The Jews were taken captive by Babylon. As they were taken into Babylon, Jeremiah wrote them a letter. These Jews who were separated from the place of worship, from the homeland of the covenant, and they're removed from that, and they're in a foreign land, surrounded by those who worship foreign gods, and they're longing to be near to God, to the sanctuary, which is where God dwelt. And Jeremiah wrote them this letter, and in the letter he wrote these words, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. They were needing hope too. And look at what the hope is. This is the hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. What was the hope that he gave the Jews? It was reconciliation with God and the nearness of God. What is the hope that he gives to you and I? The greater hope, the better hope, is that God is near. It's the same hope. It's the same promise. And he just calls on us to believe knowing it's present even now. I remember one day I was, I think I was at a mall. I was at a food court. That's kind of where I hang out at a mall. But, and I was looking around at all the different people there and, and seeing what everybody was doing in such a vast diversity of people in a mall, right? Uh, some of you kids, do you even know what a mall is anymore? I don't know. But um, all, the, all these different people are there. And I realized, you know what unites every single person? Every person in this world, everyone, is united by the same thing. Every one of us wants to be happy, right? We just do. We have a lot of different strategies for how we're going to go about that. Everybody's trying their their, their own way, whatever that may be. Maybe it's through uh, building uh, relationships and being accepted by one group of people or by another group of people. Uh, Maybe some people think that they're going to be happy by killing other people. Even that action is an effort that a person is taking to be happy. And we're all striving for that. We're also all striving for hope. Every person needs hope. Every person faces the reality that we live in a sin-cursed world. Every person on this planet faces that reality. And that reality weighs heavily upon them because God designed it to weigh heavily upon them. We're all looking for hope. But if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, friend, you have a real hope. Not, oh, that's a real good hope. No, 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 no. That's a hope that is real, which makes it better. Engage in that hope as you use God's guarantees and as you look to the substance of your hope, which is the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's not just everybody at the mall. It's everybody in this room. Every one of us.
Father, sometimes it feels hopeless. Sometimes it feels so heavy. Sometimes it feels like it's, it's, it's more than we can bear. And yet you've told us that we have something that is real, a hope that is true, that is better, that is stronger. Father, grant that we may have such a hope. Help us to use the guarantees that you've given to us and to look to the substance of that hope. Father, I pray for this congregation that you will fill us with hope. And I pray that it will be a hope that will shine from our very beings. That as we leave this place and we interact with others around us who also long for hope, that we will be, like as it were, a group of lighthouses moving around in this world, calling all men to you. Will you do this? And in this way, give glory and honor to Jesus, our Savior. Amen.